Freddy's coming for you. Three, four, gonna smoke some more. Fucking welcome back to Fried Squirms. I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. We're gonna get high talk about horror movies. This week, we're skipping number two. Jumping all the way over to Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors. Yeah. Before that, we're going to get in our green hits. <laughs> this is a fun one. <laughs> so what are we both smoking today, Danny, since we brought the same thing for each I other? No, coincidentally enough, we both brought each other a J each of Genius Jack. And we both went to Flower to pick this J up. From what I understand, I think you mentioned this the other night, too, is that yeah, this I brought is a, this two times ago. Yeah, I so said this is a phenotype of uh, Jack Harrer. We're not sure what exactly the phenotype is being expressed. We don't have any genetic information on it, so... Yeah, we don't know what they're breeding for as far as their Jack plants are going. Exactly, so we don't have any information on that. But as far as numbers go, if people like to play the numbers game, this is clocking in at 20.82% over at Flower here in town. I uh, wish I had a little bit more information. Usually with Jack, you get like citrusy notes. It's a sativa, so we do know that much. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, I don't really know much more. I know that I've liked it the other times I smoked it. Yeah, if you got them, smoke them. That's right. Well, that was nice and easy. I suppose let's get into the guts and bolts of Dream... I'm not going to say the entire fucking title this entire time. Of Dream Warriors. <laughs> <laughs> guts and bolts. All right. Guts and bolts. Who and what went in the making of A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. And to start off, a spoiler-free setup. God, how much longer would this be after the first one? This it's a is, year after the second flick. Right, but this is supposed to be a direct sequel, sequel to the first And one. it's implied that Nancy is an intern. So I want to say like five or six years after the first one. I think they do mention that in the film, though. So this is not like a major spoiler, but I want to say five or six years after the facts from the first film. Anyway, uh, teenager Kristen Parker ends up in a psychiatric hospital after her mom thinks she's suicidal thanks to, I mean, it's a nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, like, Freddy shows back up. <laughs> but luckily, like, Nancy's the new intern, and so now she's got to help try to keep this group of kids alive who are all starting to see Freddy again. Yeah. Of course, we did like talking about the people who go into making the film and the actors and actresses in front of the cameras. And this week, we're going to discuss our director, Chuck Russell. He's also credited with helping writing the screenplay for this film. But Chuck is known for directing such films as the 1980, I can't remember, it was like 88, The Blob, The Mask, the film Eraser, which is an Arnold Schwarzenegger film, and The Scorpion King. Now, writers on this, there's several people. Wes Craven, of course. We have Bruce Wagner. He's responsible for writing the screenplays for such films as Wild Palms and Maps to the Stars. And we have, I believe he's won multiple awards, but we have Frank Darabont. And he's responsible for writing the screenplays for The Blob, The Fly Part Two, a ton of Stephen King adaptations, Mm. starting with like The Shawshank Redemption, The Green Mile, The Mist. And he's also helped develop The Walking Dead from 2010 to more recently here in 21. So, right. pretty cool. All right, we have cinematographer Roy H. Wagner, 
a gentleman who's got some really cool films underneath yeah, his belt. Roy. Yeah, Roy. So when you go back and look at some of his early films, he's got such things as Witchboard, Return to Horror High. He did five episodes of Beauty and the Beast back in 87. It's really cool. Mm. He did seven episodes of Quantum Leap back in 1989. Oh, sure. Yeah, he did a show called Nasty Boys, which is also a TV movie. I know it's not what you think. <laughs> He's also helped on such things. This is really cool. He did 40 episodes of Party of Five. No shit. Wow. He's also okay. the DP for the film The Pest. What? Yeah, dude. You you know I love The Pest. Uh, we both like Johnny Legs a lot, man. He's helped on nine episodes of CSI from 2000 through 2001. And more recently, he's done such things as like House, Burn Notice, several episodes of those, The Beast back in 2009, Elementary, the television show, and he's got some upcoming projects, stuff like uh, Zombie Bride and The Lost Lederhosen. Okay. So, you know, look out for those, I suppose. We have a couple of editors on this, starting off with Terry Stokes, and Terry, once again, has got some cool credits. They helped edit The Blob, such things as Suburban Commando. Old uh, Hulk Hogan film. Yeah, <laughs> shit. Critters. I haven't seen Suburban Commando. I haven't. I don't, think since. I don't think I've seen that since I was a kid. Critters three and four. Okay. Uh, wow. The film Mafia. Jay Moore. Oh fuck! I yeah. remember that movie. Not well, but I remember it. Yeah, I was like, ooh, I can't remember it too well, but I remember when it came out. I used to be a big Jay Moore fan, and he's also helped with the Brady Bunch and the White House TV movie from 2002. Hmm. And his partner on this is Chuck Weiss. Some of the projects they're known for are Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4 and 5, so helped edit on that. L.A. Law for 28 episodes way back in the early 90s, and The Burning Zone from 96 through 97. Big name in music on this. The composer is Angelo Badalamenti. The reason I say his big name is this guy's worked with David Lynch on a lot of things. Mm. So looking back at his early filmography, which is super surprising... Because his big credit was Blue Velvet to kick things off back in 86. And then when you start going through his filmography, holy moly, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, Wild at Heart, Twin Peaks, he actually wrote the theme music for that, and Fire Walk With Me, Lost Highway. Like I said, if you've seen a David Lynch film, you've pretty much heard his work. That's what I'm getting at there. Uh, Cabin Fever. Yeah, The Beach, which is really cool. Mulholland Drive. Yeah, 2005's. Dark Water, The Wicker Man. Oh, we've Man. brought him up before. I know we've talked about because him Because yeah. Dominion. Exactly. Prequel to The Exorcist. Exactly. So it's not like the first time we've talked about him, but man, what a big name. I was like, oh, what the fuck's he doing on a Nightmare on Elm Street? <laughs> but here we are, so that was awesome. All right, special effects was done by Cinema Research. They helped with the titles and Dream Quest images. This was produced by Robert Shea. We've actually talked about his sister. Do you know who his sister is? Hmm. Lynn Shea. Oh, okay. And she was in the first Nightmare on Elm Street. She was the teacher. Mm. Yeah, and it's like, oh, it makes sense because he's like one of the big producers for New Line Cinema. Because speaking of New Line Cinema, they're one of the production companies along with Heron Communications and Smart Egg Pictures. This was distributed by New Line Cinema for the 1987 United States theatrical release. Released on February 27th, 1987 here in the States. I was five years old when this came out. Had a budget of four and a half million. It grossed forty four point eight million. And the tagline, there's a couple of them, but the one that I got for this is, "If you think you'll get out alive, you must be dreaming." Eh, I like that. That's fun. 
Yeah, and it makes sense, given. All right, here we go. We got quite the cast. I'm going to lead it off with the big man, man of the hour, Robert England. Talked about him a number of times Freddy Krueger. Right, I'm just going to list the episodes that we actually talked about him on. We talked about him on episode 17 way back when we did A Nightmare on Elm Street, the original. We also talked about him on episode 20 for Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. Episode 88, he was in The Wishmaster. And episode 111, Urban Legend. Mm-hmm. And if we got to keep talking about we we'll be here all day. Maybe was like that no. it? Did he not show up in Death House? No, I, I was surprised. I was kind of looking for it. <laughs> it's like, no, they didn't have Freddy. They had Jason and fucking... Way to escape that, Robert England. I know. Also, he doesn't turn down many roles, I don't think. Like, I've seen his filmography. Like, it's kind of weird that he wasn't in it. It must have been, like, a time thing, because... I know, it's kind of weird, but uh, one I watched more recently, if I can give one more credit, is a movie called Dead and Buried. Mm. It came out in like 81, so kind of old school horror, but he's in that. I can say that. And uh, another one, this is from my friend Sean. He and I used to watch Freddy's Nightmare, which is a television show back in the day. All right, we've already talked about her briefly, but reprising her role as Nancy Thompson, we have Heather Lagenkamp. Once again, we talked about her on episode 17 for A Nightmare on Elm Street. We actually talked about her, too, because she is married to a special effects artist. And we talked about her because she helped with uh, uh, Cabin in the Woods. Right, because she was the makeup's effect coordinator. Yeah, so she's actually gotten her hand in that. I know she shows up later in, what's it, like A New Beginning or something like that, or Freddy's Mm -hmm. Nightmare, Mm -hmm. one of those. So she reprises her, her role a couple of different times, and she's been in some other films throughout, but... This is pretty much her claim to fame. All right, so moving forward, we have Craig Wasson, who plays the role of Dr. Neil Gordon. I'll tell you something funny, man. I'm going to go ahead and get this out of the way. For the longest time, I was like, man, this dude looks like a dead ringer for fucking Bill Maher. Because every time I think about Brian De Palma's uh, body yeah. double, I was like, is that Bill Maher? <laughs> it's like, no, it's Craig Wasson. Uh, he's actually got some really cool films of note. So we can go back. I've already mentioned Body Double. He helped on an episode of Tales from the Dark Side. That episode is The Geese and Stacks back in 1986. Some people might have seen him in Malcolm X as a TV host. He was also in such things as Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Season 4, Episode 19, Hard Time. Ghost Story. Yeah, dude. With Fred Astaire. I was going to say, that's why I was like, what the fuck? Fred Astaire? Yeah, 1981. Let's see, more recently, he's been in such things as Aquila and the Bee. I heard some good things about that film, cool. and he was in Sasquatch Mountain. All right, we have a very young Patricia Arquette who plays the role of Kristen Parker in this film. Man, I'm trying to think how far back I go, like, remembering who she is or who she was. And I want to say probably True Romance. Okay. That's probably where I really knew who she was. And from there, she went on to do such things as Ed Wood. She was in Lost Highway. Makes sense. David Lynch there. Little Nicky is another big one. Stigmata, pretty decent one. Bringing Out the Dead. She was in the film Holes. I know we brought that up a couple different times. It's interesting. She was more recently in such things as like Boyhood from 2014. She voiced Harmony's mom in Toy Story 4 back in 2019. And the documentary You Cannot Kill David Arquette. I know she was in Medium. That was probably another one of those television roles people might recognize her in, where she played Alison Dubois. Oh, yeah, 130 episodes. Yeah, I was like, I never did watch it, but I remember she was in it. I I remember that, too. And CSI Cyber was another big one she was in as well. All right, 
We have Ken Sagos plays a role of Roland Kincaid. Some pretty interesting things of note. He does appear in the sequel, A Nightmare on Elm Street Part Four: The Dream Master. Some people might recognize him because he played Daryl in the television series What's Happening Now back in 87 through 88. He's also made appearances in The Twilight Zone. That episode was But Can She Type? He was also in Night Court, My So-Called Life, Martin, The Parkers, The Division, and The District. I did want to mention a couple of films. He was in Intolerable Cruelty, and he was also in Never Sleep Again and In Search of Darkness, which both are documentaries. And I don't know if it still is, but In Search of Darkness was on Shudder. Oh, yeah, that's right. So I was like, that's really cool. All right, moving forward, we have Rodney Eastman. He plays a role of Joey Crussell. A few films of note from him. He went uncredited, but he did appear in Chopping Mall <laughs> way back when. Wow. Yeah, he reprises his role in A Nightmare on Elm Street Part Four, The Dream Master. And he was in, I think it's 2010's I Spit on Your Grave. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Oh shit, he's actually in Oh, he's in a rock band with He's in a rock I saw band. That. But um interesting. he's in maybe strangely my fucking deep cut favorite oh. Sam Jackson movie, Caveman's Valentine. Oh shit. Oh yeah, yeah. I remember you brought that up a few times. Yeah. I fucking love that movie. I see you, Stiverson. That is awesome. All right. Jennifer Rubin plays the role of Taryn White. A few films of note from her. She was in the 1988 film Bad Dreams. Some people might know her from 1991's film The Doors, where she played Edie Sedgwick. She was also in such things as 1993's The Crush with Alicia Silverstone and Carrie Elwes. She's been in such things as Better Harvest. Some people might have seen her in Red Scorpion Part 2. She was in a Roger Corman film from 95. That's uh, The Wasp Woman. She was in a parody (laughs) of Pulp Fiction in 1997's Plump Fiction. And more recently, if you want to call that, she was in the Never Sleep Again, the Elm Street Legacy documentary. And she's done a number of things in television. I guess 2013 CBGBs was the last thing she appeared in. She was in an episode of Tales from the Crypt in 92. That episode is Beauty Rest. And she was also in an episode of The Outer Limits, Second Thoughts. That was that episode. Do we dead name this guy? Yes. (laughs) Fuck yeah. Larry. Larry Fishburne. Yeah, don't call me Lawrence. <laughs> no, for real. But we have talked about Mr. Fishburne, let's see, four different times. Three because he was on Hannibal for three seasons. And we talked about him on episodes 40 through 42. So if you're a fanable, and we're talking to you, Mark Wand, go check those <laughs> out. <laughs> and we also talked about him when we had Justin, our friend, on the show. That's right. We did episode 62. I can't believe it's been that long ago. We talked about him on Event Horizon. Mm-hmm. And before we even recorded, I know you looked it up, which is really cool, why he reverted back to his birth name. Lawrence, that is. Well, because he was credited as Larry Fishburne until he was like 30. Yeah, I'm like, what the fuck? But one, of the, whole, one of the things I knew was that like he doesn't like being called Larry these days. And so when I saw his name pop up in the credits as Larry Fishburne, I was like... Oh, yeah, he did used to be called Larry. What the fuck happened to that? And, like, right before we started this show, we went on, like, a 10-minute fucking deep dive. There was a New York Times article published in 1993 called Once Larry, Now Lawrence that chronicles his early to mid-career and when he starts, like, getting award-nominated and shit. And what was the movie? Two Trains Running? Yeah. Yeah. 
Won a Tony Award. One of um, his co-stars in Two Trains Running started calling him Lawrence, and it kind of clicked for him, I guess, at that point, like, from yeah, what I read. Yeah, Lawrence. Is because, like, up to that point, he had almost always been Larry. the youngest person on set, so, like, it made sense to be Larry. Yeah, and I And everyone called him Larry except for his parents. <laughs> but then, like, he's on Two Trains Running. He's 30 years old. He has, like, a wife and kids. I know. He's no longer the youngest one on set. And so when this guy calls him Lawrence, he's like, yeah, I am a fucking Lawrence. Like, <laughs> And you mentioned it doesn't hurt that it's spelled the way Lawrence Olivier spells his mm-hmm. name. So I understand. I get it now. Makes total sense. I did want to mention a few films. Man, I know we'd be here all day if we go through his filmography. But I did mention, I think it was his first credit, perhaps, in uh, Cornbread, Earl and Me. He's super young. He's like 13, 14 years old. You mentioned, too, I mean, before recording, he was in Apocalypse Now. I mean, that's huge. He was in Rumblefish. I know that's one I've brought up a couple times. Still highly recommend it. It's so fucking good. And that's a Francis Ford Coppola Mm -hmm. movie. This might be the earliest film I can recall seeing in the theater, and I still can't believe it because I was four when it came out. But my grandma was a big Whoopi Goldberg fan. Did you go to fucking Color Purple in the theater? I sure did. And (laughs) I looked it up, and I was like, it would have came out around Christmas in 85 so i would have been four regardless because i I remember sitting in the theater with my grandma watching this shit all right a few other things he was in school days way back in the day i want to say one of the first films i remember him being in i mean outside of probably this film even though i didn't know he was but boys in the hood searching for bobby fisher higher learning is another one of those i really like a lot man and then the matrix series that really catapulted him to a whole different level did I ever bring up how, like, very weirdly, my mom bought me School Days? The mm. fucking Spike Lee joint? And that's crazy. I definitely watched him in that when I was a kid. Because, like, my fucking right-wing mom decided to buy me a movie on colorism at black wow. universities. Yeah, that's early 90s. <laughs> there was some very prominent, like, social commentary films from, mm-hmm. you know, black directors and what have you. And... Yeah, I remember that distinctly. Same thing with higher learning and shit like that, man. Those Spike Lee joints. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were on point. I was going to say, probably one of his most famous films, I think it made all the money at the box office, is Biker Boys. Oh, shit. I was <laughs> going to say Osmosis Jones. That one, too. I know. <laughs> Woo! Woo! But he was in uh, Aquila and the Bee. I remember that's probably why I'd, I'd seen all that, the fuss about that. But Man of Steel, Ant-Man and the Wasp, shit. He's John Wick. John Wick. Damn, dude. Running with the devil. Yeah, so, I mean, he's been in a ton of stuff. We already mentioned his television credits. All right, moving forward, we have Bradley Gregg plays the role of Philip Anderson, the sleepwalker. And when I looked at his filmography, I was like, holy, blew my mind when I found out who he played in one of my favorite movies. But before I get to that, some people might have seen him early on as a part of Steve Jackson's gang in the 1985 film Explorers. Starring a young Ethan Hawke and River Phoenix. But the movie that surprises shit out of me, he plays Eyeball Chambers, which is in the film, in oh. Stand By Me. I'm like, what? He's Eyeball Chambers? That's crazy. Okay. Yeah. And then he went on to play Roscoe in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade back in 89. He was in the 1990 film Madhouse. He was in Class of 1999. He was in The Fisher King, Fire in Fire the, the Sky. sky Dude. Yeah. Yeah, and Welcome to Acapulco was a more recent film he was in, but he's done some producing, he's done a little bit of directing, but yeah, man, 
eyeball chambers. That's awesome. All right, we have Ira Hayden plays the role of Will Stanton. He is our cripple boy in the film. Okay, yeah, yeah. Now, he was in Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and he was also in Father of the Bride. Those are his two big roles. All right, we have Penelope Sudro. She plays the role of Jennifer Caulfield. She was in the films Fire with Fire and Dead Man Walking. We have another gentleman who oh, reprises his role. Oh, she's the one that looked like a fucking young Amy Schumer. A little bit. Yeah, you're right. I was trying to place her for a second. I was like, what's the name? What's, oh, yeah. Yep. All right, we have John Saxon plays the role of Lieutenant Donald Thompson, who is Nancy Thompson's dad in the film. Now, we talked about him on two films. We talked about him, of course, because he was in A Nightmare on Elm Street for episode 17 and episode 99 when we talked about Black Christmas. Mm -hmm. And for me, because he's such a distinct-looking guy, I always remember him in those Bruce Lee films, man. Oh, yeah, Enter the Dragon. Dude, yeah. Yeah. But I was looking up some stuff, man. Apparently, he did a film back in the early 50s or mid-50s, and he became a teen idol because of it. And that film was Rock Pretty Baby. And uh, it's pretty interesting, man. So it kind of launched his career, and he had an extensive career, if you look through it, from the 50s and 60s. And then, yeah, I mean, I don't even know where to fucking start, man, <laughs> with this guy. Dude, he was in Dario Argento's Tenebra mm -hmm. from 82. I'm like, hmm, that's another one. Bunch of little fucking westerns and shit, because he's yeah. got a great western look, to be honest. New Nightmare from Dust Till Dawn. He made a cameo appearance in that. Damn, dude. Just a ton of stuff, man. Oh, he was in Pelts, which is another Argento episode for Masters of Horror mm. back in 2006, dude. So, yeah. But it's nice to see his face back in this. All right. This is interesting when I brought her up, and that is Priscilla Pointer. She plays the role of Dr. Elizabeth Sims. She's like the older doctor. Oh, yeah. Okay. But some people might know her because she is the mother of Amy Irving. You know, like, who is Amy Irving? Well, we talked about Amy back when we reviewed Carrie, and she played Sue Snell. Oh, shit, that's... So she actually played Sue Snell's mother in the film. <laughs> oh, shit, okay. Yo, she also played her mom, and let's see, it's a, she also played her on-screen mom in Honeysuckle Rose and Carried Away, but Priscilla's been in such films as The Onion Field, Mommy Dearest, she was in Twilight Zone the movie, she was also in David Lynch's Blue Velvet in the film Coyote Moon. Pretty interesting. It said she appeared in three of her son's films, David Irving, and Rumpelstiltskin. that was Rumpelstiltskin. Yeah. Goodbye, Cruel World. And, and Chud 2, Bud the Chud. <laughs> I'm like, hell yeah, dude. So it was pretty cool. I was like, all right, makes sense now. All right, moving forward, we have Clayton Landley plays the role of Lorenzo. He's like one of the orderlies. Okay. Pretty much the only, well, oh, I can't yeah, say not okay. the only male because we got Larry playing the other one. Mm -hmm. But a few films of note from him. He's actually been in some really cool stuff. He was in 1988's The Blob. He was in The First Power with Lou Diamond Phillips. Mm. He was in 1990's Pump Up the Volume. Dude, I already mentioned Peter Coyote in name. Christian Slater film. That movie's actually really good. Really, really good. He was Tiny in... Tiny part in Tank Girl. I saw that. He was in <laughs> Ghost in the Machine back in 93. Mm. He was in 1996 as Eraser. He was in... Zombie Strippers from 2008, uh, Scary Movie Part 5. Oh. Did you see what he played there? Sodomized Cop? Sodomized Cop. And he was in 2016's Sully. 
All right, moving forward, we only have a few more to get through. We have Brooke Bundy. She plays a role of Elaine Parker, which is Kristen Parker's mom, who's Patricia Arquette's mom, I guess, in the film. A few things of note from her. She does reprise her role in A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4. The Dream Master said she also appears in the Never Sleep Again Elm Street Legacy. But a few things of note from her. She did a lot of television, a lot of those westerns, such things as like Gunsmoke, Bonanza, she was also a part of the Mod Squad, the Virginian. She was in an episode, I think, of the Brady Bunch and Charlie's Angels. Night Gallery. Dude, yeah. Star Trek, The Next Generation. My Emergency, Three Land Dude. of the Lost. Yeah, just a bunch of stuff. Just, I think, an appearance here and there. But she made her rounds on television, so it was really cool. And last but not least, I have Nan Martin. She plays the role of Sister Mary Helena. And she also has another name in this film, but I'm going to reserve that for next. All right, a few things of note from her, because she goes way back. Probably some things we might recognize. She was in a Dan Aykroyd film, Dr. Detroit, from 1983. Mm. She was also in such things as Castaway from 2000, and she was also in 2001's Shallow Howl. Who was she in Cast? Oh, Kelly's mother, okay. Yeah, dude. Oh, okay. Like I said, just a lot of stuff there. She was in an episode of Baywatch back in 93. For those who are curious. Oh, she was also Mrs. Louder in the Drew Carey show from 95 through 99 for 25 episodes. So some people might recognize her there. Yeah, she was in an episode of Six Feet Under. Been on her, man. Some really cool stuff. But that pretty much rounds out our cast and crew. You did give us a brief setup of what the film entails. Should give you some warnings heading into the next section. This is the one where Freddie starts saying bitch all the time, bitch. <laughs> Damn right, bitch. No, I mean, normal Freddy shenanigans, so dreamscapes being turned against you yeah, exactly. with some violence and blood, but nothing to the point of being, like, extreme. Yeah. It's like slasher. Exactly. Language, boobies. Yeah, there's some religious connotations in this film. There's some, I wouldn't really call it drug use, but there's some, you know. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's it's medic. It's not that, like drug use. But there's also like oh. injections, you know what I'm saying, without getting too explicit. It's yeah. implied. It's implied. Yeah, look, and it's somebody, a part of a dream sequence. It's part of a dream. That's one of those ones that's like, does that count as drug use? Dude, like a uh, little bit of a spoiler here. That was a scene that caused it to get banned in Germany or some shit. Oh, crazy. Yeah, because of its context, I guess. I mean, I guess it's but drug what? use, but it's not actually happening and it's not happening it's willingly. Silly, man. It's, it's not silly. normal drug use. No. It's in my dreams. Yeah, I don't know. That's it, right? Like, slasher-type violence and blood. And I think there's not much. Well, yeah, there's a little bit of sexual stuff. You already mentioned boobies yeah, and stuff. Boobies. But yeah, it's about it, really. Cool. I guess let's find out how Dream Warriors made us squeal. <laughs> how does that make you squeal? All right, so let me start off by saying, I mean, I remember which episode it was. It was probably episode 17. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I said some not very nice things about the Dream Warriors. I think I was thinking more of Dream Master. Okay. I'm not positive. I don't remember what I said. I'm not going to go back and revisit those statements. <laughs> I'm going to say that whatever I said was definitely hyperbole. It's not as bad as I made this movie out to be. This movie is actually pretty good, but it's still not great. I totally agree with that sentiment. It ain't as bad as I made it out to be in episode 17, though. So if you're a loyal listener and you remember me fucking trash talking Dream Warriors, (laughs) I think I meant Dream Master. I might not have. 
I have to rewatch that one now, too. I know. There's some things I do remember about that one, but they're very vague. Same. Same. I realized that I had maybe only seen this movie once before. I'd definitely seen it before because, like, I remembered, like, the head going into the TV bit and shit. But Yeah. Now, growing up, I already mentioned this film came out in 87. Now, because I had access to cable and things like that, I'd seen this one number of times as a kid, but as an adult, the last time I watched this all the way through, whew, I would say, man, maybe not since maybe early 2000s at the latest, I should say, for me, but I'd even say maybe as far back as the 90s. Damn. Yeah. It's yeah. I mean, it's been, like I said, I definitely remember seeing it because there was a few spread out scenes throughout it where I was like, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got that now. Yeah. But... Dude, like, yeah, I was a kid. Yeah, it's been a hot minute, but it's nice to revisit these films. All right, I mean, I guess I already said I think it's good, not great, but I guess I could... I don't know, like, as far as Nightmare on Elm Street goes, this is the one where Freddy starts becoming the Freddy that you usually think of. Exactly. So that's kind of neat, actually. I thought this one was where they started really leaning in the jokes and, like... He makes a couple quips and shit. Oh, but no, I, I want to say without swelling too much, I think it's in the next one where yeah. he really takes on that persona. But this one is definitely the start sense of it. it. Yeah. yeah. You You're like, oh, it. okay, this is what we're doing now. All right. Yeah, he was ad-libbing, and by he, Robert England a little bit. I don't know. Like I said, that's neat because Freddy's such an iconic oh, character. Yeah. He is literally the first thing that comes to mind anytime you bring up a Nightmare on Elm Street. But at the same time, like... I don't know why that's the version of Freddy that everyone likes when it's mostly from the worst movies of the franchise. That's another solid point. <laughs> I mean, can't help but notice that. Because it kind of takes him a while to get there. Because he's, like we just said, he's not fully there in this one. Yeah. And he's making some quips, but... Don't expect that in the second... I can go ahead and spoil that for you if you haven't seen it. But in the second one, he definitely doesn't do any quips. He's a little bit more aggressive. Yeah. But, um... He's still mostly just mean in this one. He is. Roland's the funny character. Yeah. He stills a little bit of the show in some scenes. Roland's fucking great. Actually, most of them were pretty good, I guess. Yeah, like, pretty solid, considering it was somewhat of an ensemble cast. I mean, there's quite a few people in this. When you actually started listing through the, all the different characters in this, I was like, oh, yeah, I guess there was that character. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they did something, too. Oh, yeah, Jesus, this list is still going That's on, That's what I was like, it? yeah, there's quite a few people, and they do have some significance in this particular film. Like, if you haven't watched Dream Warriors before and you're still listening to this, and I say, like, this is kind of what you think of as Freddy, not only is this what you think of as Freddy, like, this is the version that's currently being parodied. I know that you're not really a Rick and Morty guy, but there's an entire episode in, like, season one where you take literally like Dream Warriors mixed with Inception. <laughs> and there's even a Freddy Krueger character called Scary Terry. That's awesome. Who ends every sentence with bitch, except for when he's talking to his family. Yeah, I want to check that out. <laughs> <laughs> like when I was watching this, I was like, oh shit, they fucking nailed it. Like, <laughs> That's this funny. is so good. And it's literally just this mixed with Inception and a little bit of something else. I can't quite decide what the something else is, gotcha. but it's this and Inception. Okay. They're going into a dreamscape, <laughs> and then suddenly Scary Terry starts fucking with them. Oh, shit. <laughs> that's awesome. But then because it's mixed with Inception, they go into Scary Terry's oh, Nightmares. That's awesome, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll have to give that one a go. That's awesome. 
literally my first fucking note for this, we already talked about it, but my first note is fucking Larry. I know. <laughs> Actually, my first note is a question. Okay. To you. Yeah. And so my question is, because this is actually a question, is have you ever chased Maxwell House instant coffee with a can of Diet Coke while listening to Dokens into the fire, <laughs> waiting on your mom to come home from her date? No. <laughs> I have, okay. Back in high school, me and my best friend liked to experiment with different ways of just drinking a shit ton of caffeine to just more easily stay up all night and playing video games. So after in science class, we learned about supersaturating liquids. We would supersaturate instant tea mix. Oh, shit. Which, by the way, would just burn so badly while drinking it. And I'm sure was just all of the sugar and it should have been instant diabetes. Oof. But yeah, we were basically just turning it into a, a syrup. Gotcha. Oof. Man. Very concentrated. But yeah. And we would drink that and then, you know, like, because we hated the taste of it and it left our throats burning, you know, to wash it down with Mountain Dew. So that's yeah. close, right? Chase it. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I can't say I've ever been that brave. As for me, I can't say I've ever chased instant coffee with any kind of soda, let alone Diet Coke, while listening to Dokken. <laughs> I was like, Jesus oh, Christ. And that would have been while listening to Creed, so. Oh, shit. Well. You know, different strokes, different folks, man. Just different times, man. Yeah. This was 87. You know, that was 87. This was, you know, um, 2001. <laughs> oh, I did write down one of my, maybe my favorite lines, actually, that Mr. Fishburne says in this film. It was during his kind of intro scene with uh, Dr. Gordon. Oh. Where they're talking about, mm -hmm. you know, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. He's like, shit. Shit. That's, that's what, what keeps, keeps people keeps alive. <laughs> I wrote that shit down, too. No, what I want to say, though, with the way this movie opens, is it every fucking time in a horror movie we open <laughs> with somebody assembling a fucking model house that it means they're not in control of their fucking life? It's a huge metaphor. It's, it's one of those things that keeps happening, <laughs> seems like. Although this time she's assembling it, and we're not just, like, zooming in on exactly, it. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And she is about to go into therapy, so that kind of makes sense. Yeah, it's... It we, still works within it. the way it's usually used in the metaphor. It's true. And I do like how they're reintroducing, which you've already done to open up our episode with the nursery rhyme. And uh, I thought it was kind of silly, but I get it with the little girl and the dream. Oh, yeah. And you could tell, quite obviously, as a doll, she's getting around. <laughs> but it leads to her slashing her wrists, or her wrists. Yeah, that was pretty nice. Ooh, nice. I like how this is opening. Yeah, she ends up getting committed. A little over the top. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we get. She doesn't want to go to sleep. It just really just keeps ramping up through the movie, and I didn't actually write down my note about it till later, but it really starts from the get-go. Even if you don't believe the kid's story, it's kind of fucked up if you have a group of kids that you're studying because no one quite knows what's going on psychologically with them, yeah, whose only connecting thing is they all don't want to fucking fall asleep, and you're sitting there like, well, we just got to sedate them. <laughs> They're going to sleep. <laughs> like, what? No, stop. Let's get to the bottom of this because... Yeah, I mean, you're subjecting them to the one thing that they do not want to be subjected to. Or at least, like, stand guard doing? for them if you're going to fucking put them to sleep. Exactly. But they're just, like, putting them in their rooms. And locking the door, essentially. 
Don't come out. But like, if that's the, the fuck? if that's the thing that's tying this entire group together, it's yeah. kind of fucked up to just be like, well, let's just sedate him. Yeah, it really is. It's not an excuse, but you got to think the time period that we were in back then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some funky shit. I didn't actually write that down till later when like she that's does true, the though. fucking the runaround to like the higher ups. Yeah. But honestly, it starts from the get-go. Like Immediately, yeah. It's like, it ain't working, it ain't happening. And it's not really until Heather Legenkamp, as Nancy comes in, because of the nursery rhyme. Mm-hmm. And she repeats it to her. And she's like, how do you know that? And boom, they're automatically sisters. And that's her introduction, Nancy. And I'm like, ah, oh, I hate to say this. She might be the weakest link in terms of actors in the film. Who, Nancy? Yeah, I feel like she might be one of them. Yeah, nobody was stellar. Yeah, there was nothing like breakthrough, but... Uh, the most stellar actor in this is fucking Lawrence Fishburne. Dude, yeah, he's plays he's it right down the middle. effortlessly just natural in all of his scenes. I 100% agree. It, it doesn't feel like he's acting. But he's barely in it. Right, but the scenes, you're right, that he's in feel good, feel authentic. Maybe yeah. next best, John Saxon? Perhaps, yeah. He's got a little bit of a stylization to his acting because of his acting no, there, background. There's no doubt about that. He feels good. Like I said, Craig Watson's all right, but he, he does feel like he's still on a De Palma film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, this is... bad. This, I mean, I like Patricia Arquette, but this is her first role. Yeah, in exactly. You can totally feel it. Not that like it shows in like she's bad. It's just like no, she's not doing tell. anything fantastic either. Right. She's not horrible, but you're right. Nothing that stands out. Let's put it that way. Uh, we already said Ken kind of steals some scenes. He but does. But that doesn't mean he's a great actor. No, there's two moments in this film I chuckled because it reminded me of us in Jafar. <laughs> and I'll get to them. And one involves him specifically. And I was like, is he pulling at me right now? So, yeah, but there are some scenes where he does steal it, and I enjoyed it. Joey was a mute one, right? Yeah. Even for being mute, he wasn't emoting. Like, I know. And it's like, uh, he was one of the characters I remembered growing up for a specific reason, which we'll get to. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, yeah, I remember this. Jennifer wasn't bad as Taryn. Yeah, she was all right. She had her moments. She had some moments where it was like, I, you could dial it back a little bit. But she was all right. She reminded me of Katie Lotz, who's White Canary on Legends of Tomorrow from the CW. Nice. And that's, I love Legends of Tomorrow, and White Canary's maybe the best character in the entire Arrowverse. So nice. It's a bit of a compliment. Like I agree. If that's the case, that's awesome. Trying to think, like the the kid Ira Hayden, he was okay. Played Will. He had his moments. He was. Oh yeah. He played the character pretty straight. uh, He was one of the better. I would say yeah. maybe not like, like the, the top, but like. But no, he was he held his own. But yeah, he's there like was, a solid third place. I was gonna say yeah, as far as overall performances, nothing that was really stellar. Oh, I know who yeah. is stellar, Zsa Zsa Gabor. <laughs> yeah, we didn't mention that. There's cameo appearances by Dick Cavett and Zsa Zsa Gabor, who they credit in the opening credits. And when they did that, my fucking jaw dropped. I'm like, how the. F- fuck did you guys get Zsa to be in this movie? Did you read anything about that? I did not. Okay, so this is interesting. Oh, and then when it turns out she was in it for 10 seconds, that made a lot more sense to me. <sighs> this is so... Alright, now, I'm just the messenger here, right? Alright. This is what I've read, so it, it could be hearsay for all I know. Apparently, and this is according to Dick Cavett, 
is that he thought so lowly of Zsa Zsa Gabor that he would never invite her on to his show for a real interview. And so when he was approached to do this film, he suggested Zsa Zsa Gabor as a joke because he's like, this is the only way I'll ever interview her. And then she didn't know that Robert England was going to jump out on her. And so her reaction is authentic. Oh, shit. She had no idea. Yeah. So they got her ass good. <laughs> That's kind of amazing. Yeah. So like I said, I don't know how much of that is 100% accurate, but it is something I gleaned and read about. Fucking Zsa Zsa, dude. Well, I mean, she acted, but it was her sister that was like the actress. She was one of those first like famous for being famous celebrities, right? It's crazy. Yeah. As, as far as I know. Pretty much. I mean... <laughs> Maybe in the modern era, or that's not even modern era. All I know is I watched enough Nick at Night that I saw when she would make the TV rounds back oh. in the day. Yeah. And I was that able to, so like, funny, man. yeah, I don't know, man. That's, like I said, I about shat myself when <laughs> I saw that Zsa Zsa was in this movie, and then it, that made, was a, scene. it made a lot more sense in a second. I Fucking this genius Jack almost just sent me down a super big Zsa Zsa <laughs> rabbit hole. I, no, that's awesome. I don't need man. that shit happening. So... The different times we start seeing shit happen in these dreamscapes, especially early on, I do want to say I've never been the guy to be like fucking only practical effects, but fuck practical dreamscapes are cool. They are really cool. I could imagine the work and effort it had to take some of those guys to put into that work to make it look like that. And I know during some time periods there was no other option, which is why we get practical effects yeah. and why some do not hold up. That's solid. We've, yeah, we've mentioned those. But when you can make believable fucking dreamscapes with practical effects. Yeah, man. Dude. It's like, pretty dope. One of my favorite things in this movie was the fucking floor up to the wall just being ripped out. In the yeah. Even um, what I thought was funny, it's not the greatest, but apparently that worm, the Freddy worm. Oh, yeah, the Freddy worm. Did you read about that? No. It had flesh tone. And uh, at last minute, they had to goop it up. Because it looked like a giant Freddy dick. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, come on, man. The old Freddy dildo. Yeah, so there's stuff like that. But still, I mean, it was practical. They even used some practical things for the television set, too, that was really mm. cool. They used, like, five different sets, and one of them, you know, Robert England could put his head through, latex or whatever, do what he had to do. And then the gal who played Jennifer, you know, they made a, a cast or a dummy out of her and put her through the TV set. So some of that stuff looked pretty decent. I mean, knowing what we know now, it takes away some of the allure, but it still looks good on film. Did you, what was it? The nerdy kid. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Will. Did you notice one of the posters he had on this wall? Oh, I want to say. And how it ties in later? I kind of want to say yes, but I can't remember exactly which poster. If it's the scene I'm thinking of when they're playing mm -hmm. on the bed, he's got posters behind him. Or at least, I can't remember. Well, he's got one behind him. I can't remember what the one behind him was. I think the one behind him was just like a drawing he drew of like the Wizard Master character or something like that. But up sort of middle of the wall up to uh, the side of his bed was some fucking Harryhausen. Oh, dude. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then just like 10 minutes later, yeah, you the get clay. the claymation puppet. That's solid. And then at the end, you get the fucking skeleton. That's solid, man. Makes sense. But I was sitting there, I was like, oh shit, look at the Harryhausen. And then 10 minutes later, when the fucking puppet started going, I was like, oh shit, fucking Harryhausen. <laughs> yeah. No, that's awesome, man, that they are incorporating that. 
The puppet thing, though, that led into one of the most gnarly things for me, though. The veins being oh, ripped dude. out, the fucking puppet sequence, yeah, is maybe is... the coolest bit in this movie for me. It's pretty dope. It almost has a little bit. Not the whole sequence, but just as the kid's going over mm-hmm. with Freddy being the puppet master. It's like, wow, that's a little bit of it-ish. I think, I think it maybe a little yeah. bit off of that. Yeah. But when they, when they get ripped up, dude. It's gnarly. It's gnarly. That's a scene I remembered. Like, when it happened, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember seeing this as a kid. I remember how that made me feel. It is a gnarly scene. I think they might have shot that backwards if you watch the way he props up. and. Oh, okay. that would make sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think they filmed that backwards. But it's still gnarly, man. That, that would a good make scene. it look more like he's getting pulled rather than... Him trying to stand up and... Mm-hmm. Yeah. But still, what the fuck? That's a good one. I'm trying to think of some ones like that in there that I liked. Even the, the House of Mirrors Freddy was kind of cool. Yeah, the House of Mirrors Freddy was pretty he cool. He was being dirty in some of those. I don't know if you yeah. got some of <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Grandpa. <laughs> Gonna wait, Grandma. So, oh, dude. When fucking Greaseball Orderly oh, is Jesus. fucking getting up in Terran shit. Okay, I'm not sure what world that guy is living in where he thinks the coolest motherfucker in this movie, Max, is going to take his fucking word over hers. Max cares about these kids. Not enough to, like, risk his job and, like, stand in the way of shit because he's just fucking orderly. But But, yeah, he's cool. He's, like, a real person. Yeah, exactly. And he's going to fucking read that guy for the filth he is right off the fucking bat. Oh, yeah, yeah. It wouldn't surprise me if he would knock that guy out. He ain't going to believe that shit one fucking second. Mm-mm. I don't think Terran would fucking believe that guy saying that shit either. Oh. Terran's got to know Max is cool. Exactly, man. I thought it was wild when, yeah, the skis ball approached her about doing meth. I'm like, whoa, meth? Dude, that, that, made me st- <laughs> that made me fucking sit up. I'll tell you what, there's parts that are in the middle of this movie where I was just like, yeah, but this news article's online right now. I could be reading. <laughs> no, yeah, well, there is some of those in this. Yeah, I think some of the conversations between Nancy and Gordon were kind of like... <sighs> yeah, I, I tuned out pretty hard during those. They were trying to do uh, the, the romantic angle a little bit. <sighs> what? <laughs> I, uh, I don't like it. I had to rewind and rewatch the lead in to the group hypnosis like three times. Yeah. It's not even that boring of a scene, but just by that point of the movie, I was just like, "Yeah, yeah they're do, they're trying to do a little." I mean, I understand what they're trying to do, but it is kind of like you've. Speaking of that part, so they do the hypnosis, right? Because they're like, they finally got Neil yeah. on board. Neil's like, "All right, right, like, well, then let's just learn to control this shit." Which they never really explain. They just go to the next scene, and they're like, "Well, we're going to hypnotize you." She has powers, so yeah, and, so it helps out. And Nancy. They've never technically said has powers, but is the best dream warrior of them all anyway. Yeah, we kind of know that. <laughs> but they don't know that. And they're like, okay, cool, yeah, let's go to our dreams. And, like, dude, Nerdy Boy has it right. Like, right off the bat, he's like, look, I can walk. Yeah. I'm doing magic. And then Kristen's like, yeah, this is what I can do in my dreams. Oh, cool. You're a gymnast. A whack gymnast, like a just beyond yeah. beginner gymnast in your dreams. It's like, dude, whack. You ain't pulling like even I hate crazy to say it, shit. Even Kincaid's man, Rollins, his was like, I can bend the legs of a chair. I mean, it's a little bit better later when we see him like punching through walls a bit yeah. and shit. I'm like, you can do better in your dreams than that. 
<laughs> well, yeah, I mean, really, Joey was the only one that had the right idea with, like, in my dreams, I can go get laid. Yeah, I'm going to get some pong hang. <laughs> I mean, about that it. wasn't the best call to make. Right, but, but you can't blame him. I was like, in the, no, he oh. had the right idea. It what kinda, was everybody else? I mean, was Terrence, there anybody else? Terrence said that she oh. was... I'm beautiful and, and bad. bad. Yeah, and bad. So that was hers. I think that was it. I think that was the only people who got made it to the dream. <laughs> I do want to bring this up. That was kind of funny because I want to say maybe one of the first interactions that you see that Joey has with the nurse. He's you know he's helping her with the towel that she dropped, whatever. And then skis ball comes in and you know whatever does what he's doing. But when Joey turns, he has that little teardrop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck is... <laughs> yeah, what the fuck was with... Why does Joey have a fucking teardrop tattoo? That's what I was like. Did he kill somebody? <laughs> the fuck is that? And it never appears again. That was weird. What the fuck was that? I don't I don't know, but I saw it, and it kind of psyched me out for a moment. Okay, no, so... Wait, how much it... did you read about, like, the... Because ma- I didn't read, like, hardly anything about the making of this. But how much did you read about the making of this? Because that's not the only fucking weird thing. Oh, That's you maybe know, one of the weird things that made it to the movie. I've heard there like, were different treatments of this. The poster for the movie, like, it has some of the kids holding weapons that they never have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like... It's weird. I think it's a case of... I won't say too many cooks, but there were several hands on this before it actually took off. And I think you're right. Like, there were certain ideas that were... I did see this because I read it. Some of the characters were altered as well. Okay. Like some of the characters were supposed to be of different race and different sex and had different abilities or different conditions that got mm. them into the hospital. But yeah, I guess once they cast, they rewrote some of the narrative or whatever. But I did read a little bit about that, that some of the characters, yeah, changed. So Freddy yanked out his tongue or not because he's not ever bleeding from the mouth you can kind of see his tongue is still in his mouth if you're looking and then suddenly there's four of them to it's a dream (laughs) that's all i can explain it that was the worst one for me yeah Yeah, partially because it interrupted boobies but right and i'm like that's some 80s boobies those are kind of rare right now (laughs) but also because it stopped making sense yeah. I mean, exactly. the other ones make... I mean, a bit you more can argue can... it makes dream sense, right. but I the mean, other ones make more dream sense. I get it. It's saying he's tongue-tied. Yeah. But, yeah, it's still fucking silly. Let's kick the motherfucker's ass all over dreamland. Yeah. Fucking Roland's the best. All right. I do want to back it up just a yeah. bit. Just a bit. I have only one issue with Roland in the film. Only one. Yeah, yeah. And we've already kind of brought it up, is when... Philip, the guy who is a sleepwalker, apparently it looks like they might be bunkmates or roommates, Kincaid and him. Because mm-hmm. he's like, he wakes up in the middle of the night and he looks at him and he says, have a nice stroll, asshole. And I was like, you know, he could have helped him back to bed, but he didn't. He let him do his thing and it led to his death. I'm not saying he's fully responsible because he's not, but he didn't take part in helping. <laughs> but this is what led to a Jafar moment. And this is why I want to bring it up too. It's because after that, they have their real talk session, and Kincaid kind of flies off the handle a bit. Right, and yeah, he yeah. has like the whole, he doesn't want to go to sleep. I don't want to go to sleep. I mm-hmm. was like, holy shit, he's saying 
in Jafar's language, he don't want to be a sacrifice. <laughs> I want to be a sacrifice. <laughs> he kind of had that moment a little bit. I was like, oh, my God, this is awesome. This is hilarious. That's not the last time a Jafar thing happens. I told Patrick about this last night. I'll bring it up here in a second. It's kind of funny. I did kind of like that part, though, where at least yeah. one of them flipped out because it's like. I mean, that's a real no. reaction. Yeah. Especially if you're being terrorized by Freddy. Especially Don't after put you put me to fucking sleep, bro. See homeboy jump off that he was apparently not awake. Or I mean, he was awake for it. I'm saying, <laughs> Jesus. I've been flipping the fuck out too. Oh, Don't Nan- put me to fucking sleep, bro. Nancy ties into why these kids are dreaming what they're dreaming because she tells them they think maybe she's bullshitting, and he's like, no, it's a guy with a dirty hat and a glove and. She basically explains that they are the last of the Elm Street children because of their parents. Oh, right. Their parents All had a hand in killing them. Yeah. So I was like, okay, that's the thread that's connecting all of this, and that's why it makes sense in film logic. Mm-hmm. At least they button that up. So I was like, okay. But that leads to the hypnosis and then Joy getting abducted in the dream. This is also somewhat where Dr. Gordon starts falling around the sister. Apparently, he's the only one who can communicate with her. Right. Yeah. And I was like, all right. There was another question, and kind of it bugged me a little bit. Because it's like, I didn't realize this, but they're starting to play into some Friday the 13th territory with the mother figure. Yeah, 100%. I'm like, ah, why are you doing this? But I mean, I kind of get it if you want to give him a backstory and explain the reason why he is, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they're kind of doing that, and it felt... I don't know. I felt a little out of place a little bit at times. But, I mean, I understand what they're trying to do. But he eventually learns because that she tells him. That was some of the him, parts I'd start to tune out because I'm like, I get what they're doing. And yeah. I, I, I kind of felt the same way. But she explains to him when he's in, like, the old abandoned section of the hospital, the old wing. She's like, yeah, there was a nurse back in the, what, 40s, 50s, whatever, that was locked in here over the weekend during a holiday. And she got raped hundreds of times she was the mother of a hundred maniacs or some shit, mm-hmm. essentially, explaining that she is the mother of Freddy Krueger. She's not saying it outright, but she pretty much is. Either that or she's the mother of the Sumatran rat monkey. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah, that bit mother. It's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> yeah. Which is, that's kind of funny, if you think about the whole mother dynamic there, but... Like, on, that's got to be what he was riffing on, right? It kind of feels like it. It kind of feels like it. That's funny. <laughs> I didn't think about that, but that is funny. After these series of events, right, you've got two kids who died under the care and another one who's in a coma now, Joy. Mm-hmm. And this leads to Nancy finally confronting her dad about Freddie. And the only way that they can it's resolve like this. Yeah, he's back. They need to find the location of where the hell the parents buried him so they can have some kind of, you know, resolve to all this. And her dad kind of brushes her off. He's like, you know, I already lost enough. Don't want to lose anything else. And then Did you Bill know he was like mall copped out? Yeah. I said, Bill Maher jumps in. <laughs> he said, you're going to tell me. I'm like, God damn this dumb shit. That leads them back to this old salvage yard. Leads them to the spot where they buried Freddy. All the while, Nancy goes back. She can't get a hold of Kristen because Kristen's already flipped out and is put in that timeout room, whatever. But she does get in contact with the rest of the kids, and they go into that hypnosis state again and jump back into the dream with Kristen. And this is where two of the kids die in their dream, and that Mm -hmm. being the wizard master, Will, 
and Taryn, the drug addict. One of the things I kind of appreciated about this movie is that even though they learned fucking superpowers, like they it's learned them ass a day ago, <laughs> Yeah, Freddy's thing is dreams. Dude, like that's his landscape, dude. That's, that's his playground. They can hurt him now. They can fight back now, but he still way outranks them. He's supernatural. Yeah. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> so the fact that some of them still get picked off, like, I actually kind of appreciate no, I, I do, that. too. I do, too, because they, they could have done real cliche and everybody survives, but no. Especially once they gain powers. Which... It would have still made sense. Right. As I'm saying, it would make sense because, yeah, they can be whatever they want to be in a dream. Mm-hmm. But you know, you fucked with the wrong one with Freddy. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much what happens, and... It leads to where you have that Harryhausen moment, right, with the skeletal remains. Freddy's, like, got rolling up in the death grips. Right. But Bill Maher comes out of it. <laughs> because he went and got holy water in the crucifix. I'm like, fuck me with this dumb shit again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this whole Jesus Every stuff. Every fucking time. But Why Freddy dips out. work against Freddy? I thought that was kind Don't of funny. Know. Where Freddy's like, he lives in, well, not necessarily If lives, Freddy but. was a Satanist, okay. Right. Because then you're at least pitting the, you know, the powers of fucking Jesus against the powers of Satan. Right. But right now you're just pitting Jesus against... a pedophile. And we know they (laughs) hang out. We see the Catholic Church. Yeah, I mean, it kind of makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) But damn, that's, yeah, that's a whole difference. But I'm like... I make that joke. I grew up Catholic. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, this shit, man. (laughs) Dr. Gordon starts to spray the holy water and all that stuff, but... I thought it was funny that he does come back and starts whooping that ass, kills uh, Nancy's dad, and then he knocks out fucking Gordon and starts to bury him halfway, and then mm-hmm. he comes back into the dream. Which <laughs> referenced a body double. Yeah, a solid man. They did do a pretty good job with the writing, if that's the case, but didn't finish the job. Mm-mm. We've learned that a million times. Double tap. Double tap. <laughs> right? So Freddy comes back into the dream, it appears everything's hunky-dory, right? Nancy gets tricked where her dad appears. That was oh, pretty right. good. Was, that was the seventh heaven moment. Oh. <laughs> okay, let's talk about that real quick, but then I'm going to back it up in right. 10 minutes because there was something I forgot to bring up when we talked about it already. Actually, I kind of dug that, too, because it's not out of bounds for this movie oh, for no, her dad's ghost to show up. Exactly. It does make sense. It would be kind of like a first. I don't think we've had ghosts show up. Yeah, but like it would fit with the way the overall feeling this movie is giving oh, yeah. at this point. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we even get Kristen having like she has a dream where she actually already lived that sequence. Mm-hmm. You know, from the beginning of the film, she has a dream where she's re-experiencing that with her mom. Yeah. Except for Freddie, you know, comes out of course, which would make sense for the same thing. But the reason why it leads to that in the first place because Joey finds his voice. They're kind of in that house of mirrors and. Nah. Yeah, I'm like, oh, that's all it took? Damn, boy. But yeah, the dad appears. The mirrors were, was cool. I like that. I thought it was kind of a cool touch. The mirrors also, it feels really dream and very Freddy at the same time. I agree. Yeah, dad gets her because it is Freddy. He stabs her with the glove, fucks her up. She starts to get the upper hand because I've already mentioned. Okay. Gordon uses the holy water and crucifix, all that stuff. While we're talking about stabbing with the glove, I want to back it up for a second. Yeah, yeah. Because Freddy totally fucking came when he injected Terran, right? Mm. You saw that face, right? Oh, I saw that O face. Like, he's like, I'm giving you some of that fucking blue sky. Give me some of that injection. And at the same time, 
Oh, that's a hot Freddy injection for you. Yeah, it is. Five knuckle shuckle. <laughs> I just, I couldn't believe they had him co- fucking coming when he was doing that. Oh, okay. Also, while we're in there, too, in that whole dream sequence, yeah. I told you there's another Jafar moment, uh, which I think yeah. is some ADR stuff. Okay. Right, so there's a scene, I think it's with Will when he gets trapped alone, because they get separated in that dream sequence, mm-hmm. right? And Will, the wizard, because he's in that long hallway in the wheelchair, gets him. Freddie has kind of, this is a super inside reference, so, but has a Cheryl voice. Oh, shit. Yeah, a little bit, right? Yeah, and then ADRs, and it sounds more like Robert mm-hmm. England. I'm like, holy shit. I noticed shit. that, too. I wasn't quite sure what that was supposed to be for a second. Yeah. It's like, never heard of him. <laughs> you know, with all that sequence, I don't know if it was meant to be implied, but I kind of wish they would have, like, just really played more into the... I wanted Freddy to twist his dream more onto mm. him. Not be like, here's your nightmare of having to go back to the chair, but instead like, well, be happy you can walk because now I'm going to make you fucking run. Mm. Exactly. I'm going to make you work for them legs. That would have been nice. Yeah, so I was like, that was the second Jafar moment in this film. I cannot believe it. It's kind of funny. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I kind of feel like if you wanted to reboot this franchise, which you know they're going to at some point oh, again, because yeah. they they've already tried. They will. You should start with Dream Warriors. This would be a good one to tackle. But I kind of want to see like a fucked up gritty Dream Warriors. I'd be okay with that. And one where it's more nebulous. Like we haven't quite got to the end yet, but we're really close. But I'm already going to say that like in my gritty modern reimagining of Dream Warriors, there never ends up being anything that you can definitely tie to Freddy in the normal physical world. And they're all the last Elm Street children because they were all victims. Mm, man. To make it more like the nebulous psychological what if. Huh. That'd be kind of cool. Was this their trauma or? Yeah. Shit. <laughs> There's a really cool stuff you can play with there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Just has to be the right person. It has to get the right treatment. We've seen what happens when it doesn't. <laughs> right. Anyway. All right. So in conjunction... With Joey finding his voice, Nancy's dad appearing, but we find out it's Freddy tricking her. And then Dr. Gordon also at the same time, of course, after Nancy gets stabbed, is that he starts to use the holy water and the crucifix and it subdues Freddy. And then Kristen is holding Nancy in her arms and trying to put her into a happy dream forever. And it leads to a funeral, which seems like it's Nancy's. Then Dr. Gordon is there too, and he finds the grave or the tombstone of Amanda Kruger, who we kind of knew all along was the nurse that he'd been following around. Mm -hmm. And then later on, he's back in his bedroom, Dr. Gordon, that is, with the papier-mâché house that Kristen had built that's a replica of Nancy's house from the original. And a light comes on in the upstairs segment of the papier-mâché house, and it's right next to a Malaysian dream doll, which we didn't bring up in the film yet, but I thought that was kind of an interesting touch. Because that kind of brings... I think because it was, implies that it's Nancy's spirit living in mm-hmm. her old house, and I think too it's a callback to the whole inspiration for some of the the whole dream stuff to begin with. Because I I think if I'm not wrong, when we reviewed a Nightmare on Elm Street way back when we talked about the whole influence behind this for Wes Craven in the first place, and I want to say some of it had to do with like nightmares and shit like that that he was reading about. Mm-hmm. And, 
you know, people dying in their sleep and whatnot. But I want to say Malaysia might have had something to do with okay. some of that influence. I can't remember if he was there or if he read a story from that part of the world. But anyhow, I thought that was kind of a nice touch. And, of course, we've already talked about it. It leads to sequels. This one was a huge hit because part two was kind of a flop at the theater. Two's weird. It is a completely different beast within itself. It doesn't really follow any of the, the storyline at all, the plot. Lo- very, very fucking loosely mm-hmm. at best. Yeah, this one got made because they're like, well, let's just make a sequel. It was kind one. of like um, right after Halloween 3. Yeah. Let's bring Michael Myers let's back. Let's actually bring him back. <laughs> Yeah, let's see what happens. So, I feel like I have to rewatch Dream Master now. Yeah, there is, I've already mentioned it to you, but there is one sequence I'll never forget in part four because it used to freak me out. So, probably going to freak me out a little bit. Not as much, but yeah, there's one particular moment. I did want to bring this up too. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did mention it in terms of the scene, but we didn't mention the line in the scene because I think that was what really launched the whole bitch thing and the quick oh, thing, yeah. the primetime bitch. Uh-huh. Yeah. Prime time. Bitch. Yeah, welcome to prime time, bitch. <laughs> yeah, but that pretty much was the start of all well, that. Well, what seals it then, though, like that starts it, but mm-hmm. what seals it is, come get him, bitch. Yeah, man. Except that's not said. It's carved into the... I was reading that during that whole filming of that sequence, you know, Robert England was saying certain lines, and then he was ad-libbing lines mm-hmm. as well, and they kind of cut some of those together, and that was one of the lines that was kept, but that kind of sparked what we talked about that what people now know Freddie as mm-hmm. a badass <laughs> fuckers got jokes yeah which i think in part four it's going to stand a little bit more although we keep, <laughs> we keep I, saying keep, that. <laughs> I keep saying that we're not doing it next week mm-hmm. we don't know what we're doing next week yet but we're not doing that next week because i i don't need to zone out that much watching a movie again no no, no like i'll I watch would. that on my own time <laughs> i feel like i would unfortunately yeah it's understandable I don't know. Like, I mean, I, I set it off the top. It's good. It's not great. Yeah, it's, it's fine. It's fine. It's a way to get back, I guess, to its roots and then to carry the franchise a little bit further, which it did. And it's not some of that super late stuff before the reboot. Exactly. Exactly. I kind of trailed off, I want to say, around five is when yeah, I started trailing off. I, I kind of stopped caring. Yeah, pretty much. I'm sure I've seen some of them. Yeah. But I would have to take a look again. Like, I don't know. I wouldn't mind revisiting them, but it doesn't have to be now. Do you got anything else to say about this? I think I'm done with it's good, but not great. Yeah, no, I did want to say that I read that both Robert England and John Saxon wrote a treatment for part three. Oh. And for those who are curious, I mean, you can read about it on Wikipedia, but John Saxon's is kind of weird. It said that the script was called How the Nightmare on Elm Street All Began, and it would have been treated as a prequel. And it would have been Freddie was ultimately innocent, or at least set up for the murders, by guess who? Charles Manson. Whoa. Right? Who, along with his followers, would have been the murderers. It says Freddie would have been forced by the mob of angry parents to make a confession. Uh, it would enrage them further, of course. After the lynch, Freddie, he comes back to avenge his wrongful death by targeting the parents' children. And in Robert England's treatment, it was called Freddy's Funhouse, and the protagonist would have been Tina Gray. From the original, Tina was the blonde-haired girl. Uh, would have been her older sister, would have been in college by the time Tina was murdered. She ends up coming back to Springwood to investigate how she died, which sounds a little bit like Nancy's character. In the script, Freddie claimed the Elm Street house as his own in the dream world, setting up booby traps like Nancy did. 
And according to England, part of it later ended up being used in the pilot episode of Freddy's Nightmares after the script had been laying around unused for a, for, uh, a few years. All right. I did want to mention maybe... That actually doesn't sound like a, ba- a bad idea. Two, two, three more things. Just really quick. Some of this kind of blew my mind a little bit. Yeah, yeah. All right. There's been some interesting things in terms of pop culture reference in this film. One being a huge one. Major reason being is because the prop for one of Freddy's gloves was stolen on set and was apparently borrowed and it made its way into a Sam Raimi film that came out that same year. It was a part of a franchise, might have even appeared in a woodshed segment in Evil Dead Part 2. And that started this whole gag back and forth Mm -hmm. between Raimi and this franchise. I thought, okay, that's really cool. I also read this was kind of interesting. I had no idea. It talked about its influence on later works. I've already talked about its influence on Ash and the Evil Dead series, but apparently that Hypnosil drug they used in this film, I think we, I don't even know we called it by name, but it was a, a oh, suppressant yeah, for, yeah. Yeah, for, for dreams. But it appears in like a couple of different comic books and films and shit like that. And this is the one thing that I read that kind of blew my mind. It says in this, in Friday the 13th, the game, in the Friday the 13th franchise, the Tommy tapes hints at Tommy Jarvis being sent to Weston Hills Psychiatric Hospital to be cared by Dr. Neil Gordon. Oh. Right? And it says Roy H. Wagner recreated scenes from the film with Kristen and the little girl using only an iPhone 11 Pro for the production. Wow. So I don't know what that necessarily means, but I was like, whoa, that's kind of a weird tie-in, which we've kind of talked about with the whole mother thing, too. Mm-hmm. That was kind of a weird kind of, th- I think they're trying to borrow, perhaps, or connect thread somehow. I was like, that's kind of interesting, man. So it even says right here, Josh Boone, co-writer, director of The New Mutants. Yep. Pretty much this film inspired him to use... I guess the mutants, kind of like Dream Warriors in an essence. Okay, yeah. Like, okay, that's kind of cool. I haven't watched New Mutants yet, but I know enough about it that that kind of makes sense, though. Yeah. Like, that like, actually makes, I need to watch of, New Mutants. Kind of interesting, man. Yeah, it... Uh, it's supposedly not good, but I need to watch it. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. I really don't, but it's got some interesting things. It's got man. Anya Taylor-Joy in it. I saw that. I do know it's got a pretty decent cast. I remember we kept waiting for it to come out because it took forever. But yeah, there's even some video game adaptations. I talked about it. Commodore 64, IBM PC. Jesus. Yeah, and the NES adaptation came out in 1990. I don't think I ever... I can't say that. I did play... I think it might have been this one, and it kind of sucked. <coughs> I'm not going to lie. So yeah, I mean, it made its way in Mad Comics mm. as well. It got spoofed or parodied in that. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's... It's pretty interesting, man. Like this film, like we already mentioned, not bad, not great, but carried this fucking franchise further. Killed at the box office. I think it opened up number one. I'm not mistaken oh, over its opening weekend and stuff. So I mean, yeah, it's it's pretty interesting what this film did. And it, I want to say it was one of the first works by Darabont, who later became mm-hmm. like already talked about all those works he did on the Stephen King adaptations. Crazy. Yeah, yeah, he did a bunch of shit. So. Angela Badalamenti, Kevin Yeager did some of the effects for Freddy Krueger. Mm-hmm. That's a big name in effects as well, so. Fuck, that's all pretty cool. Yeah, I know, without geeking out. It was fun, man. It was nice to revisit the franchise. I've been I agree. way it's too been long. been a while. Been a while. I already said we don't know what we're doing next time. Right. We're going to go figure that out. <laughs> so for this time, I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. Fried squirms? Out. out. <laughs>
Hi, everybody. Tyler here. If you like the podcast, please hit subscribe however you're listening to us right now. Also, if you could rate and review us however you're listening to us, or preferably over on Apple Podcasts, that'd be super cool as the entire world is ran on algorithms and we want to be all up in them. Uh, We highly appreciate it whenever you tell all your friends about us. If you have any suggestions, comments, questions, want us to put eyes on your current independent horror project, you can always contact us, squirmcast at gmail.com, or you can contact us through our website, www.friedsquirms.com. Scroll through our entire back catalog there, or click the links up at the top, as we are part of the Earverm Podcast Network, uh, and would love it if you went and checked out some of our sister shows. Uh, The easiest way to keep track of things across the entire network is to go over to that website. That's earverm.com, E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M.com. You can search for us across all the social medias. If you type in Fried Squirms, we should be what pops up. Not going to give you all those ads. So, with all of that in mind, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, peace.